Amen. Amen. Okay, Maple Grove, are, are you ready to open up and dig into some sharper than a double-edged sword, some living and active Word of God this morning? Oh, man, I'm out of here. No. Now, today is April 14th, 2013. We're in chapter 12 of the story, The Trials of a King, and a conversation I'm calling Beaten But Not Defeated. And just a heads up, if you read chapter 12 this week, and by the way, you know the drill, who did their homework, who read chapter 12 this week, all right? Who's planning on reading chapter 13 next week, all right? A lot of liars in the room today. No, kidding. <laughs> Welcome to Maple Grove. Glad you're here. Well, but, but I just want to give a heads up that, that uh, um, if you've read this chapter, you know that it's a PG-13 chapter. Uh, and the bottom line, if you have younger children with you, you may want to be prepared to answer some questions after the service. And don't send them to me because I'm just going to send them right back to you, all right? Um, you know, and this will be a great time to take them to our awesome children's ministry. Um, now, now, last week, we, we looked at the early life of David, and, and, and it was an awesome time. I, I mean, David taught us some incredible things about the bigness, the hugeness, the greatness of our God specifically. Uh, uh, David taught us three things that should motivate us to stop trying to put the, the sovereign God of the universe in, in a box. Uh, number one, that the, God's anointing, God can use anybody uh, God's power, uh, God can do anything, and God's timing at any time. And it, it was great stuff, and, and, and David, he, he's an awesome guy. And you don't take my word for it. Uh, check out what the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, a thousand years after David lived. Here, here's what Scripture says. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God, test, God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And we saw some, some of those chasing after God's heart things last week. As David, after being anointed as king, he goes back to tending sheep. And as David served King Saul, he never once boasted, you know what, I've been measuring your office, big guy, because pretty soon I'm taking your place. We saw this chasing after God's heart when, when David won victory after victory after victory, and he always gave the glory to God. Uh, we see it as David jumped into a, a, a fight-to-the-death cage match with the reigning champion Goliath, totally motivated by the honor of God. Uh, we saw David chasing after God's heart when, when even though Saul was hunting David down, David still trusted in God. I mean, who can forget that great scene in 1 Samuel 24 where, where Saul goes into the cave to go to the bathroom and, and David's men are like, now's your time, kill the guy when he's sitting there and David wouldn't do it. You know, he says, you know what, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointing. Yeah, the picture we saw of David in the first half of his life, pretty amazing. Skilled soldier, a loyal friend, a faithful son, and an extremely passionate follower and worshiper of God. I mean, at halftime when David looked at the scoreboard, it looked really good for David. However, the second half isn't so good. It was not as noble. It was not as God-honoring. In fact, in fact, it was a train wreck. It was full of lies and secrets and scandals and conspiracies. Uh, it, it was a train wreck that would result in his family going down in flames in every imaginable way possible. And listen, most of the trials that David went through during this time were of his own making. Uh, Proverbs 
Uh, David's son, uh, by the way, uh, wrote these words, that, that uh, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they're angry at the Lord. In other words, people get themselves into trouble, and they get mad at God. But, but listen, this is one thing that David never does. Again, the first half of his life taught us some powerful and potentially transforming truths. How, how to slay our giants, how to throw away our boxes and let God be all that God is. God's anointing, God can use anybody, even the person sitting next to you. God can do anything at any time. And listen, the second half of his life is also, it's full of powerful and transforming truths that have the potential to help you and I slay an even bigger giant than Goliath. And you know what? When I step into this chapter of David's life, I am forever grateful that God stopped writing Scripture 2,000 years ago. I mean, aren't you? I mean, who in this room would want to have their sins and failures recorded for all generations to read, discuss, study, make movies about, write books on, and then preach sermons about, like today, about, hey, here's how David screwed up. Yet no sin other than Adam and Eve has received more press than this one, David's sin with Bathsheba. And we're going to pray. And let me tell you, if ever there was a time for us to pray with our palms open, this is it. And disclaimer, this sermon is only for sinners, right? If you're not a sinner, you're, you, you got to get out of church free card right now. Pop through those doors. All right? Okay, so we're all sinners. Same boat. Good deal. And let's pray palms open. We do that around here. It just kind of reminds us that it's symbolic. God, you know what? I'm gonna, you're going to say some stuff and your mercy reigns. I like that. You know, your grace sustains. Bring it on, God. But then sometimes he says stuff that's not as comfortable. And we're just saying, God, no matter what you bring to me, I'm going to take it. Uh, God, we love you. And we're in all of you. And we're so grateful that you're good. Because if you're not, we'd be in so much trouble. But you're good and you're gracious and you're kind and you're merciful. And, and God, as we look at this chapter in David's life, I mean, he was a guy like us, Lord. He had hopes and dreams and Sometimes he did well, and sometimes he didn't do so good, God. Uh, but he always trusted you and leaned to you. God, help us to learn from his life, and help me, God, use me, Lord. I, I, I'm a sinner. I, I need this sermon probably as much or more than anybody in this room. God, help us to receive what you bring us. In Jesus' name, amen. And the way I want to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the story and then takeaways, and the takeaways are going to be like really fast. And I say that because... After the first couple acts of the story, when I tell you, you're like, oh my gosh. You know, I didn't know I needed to bring lunch and dinner, right? Okay, because they'll be a little bit long, but the, the takeaways will be real quick. And act one of the story, I'm simply calling sin, okay? At chapter 11 of Second Samuel opens up, David is probably between the ages of 50 and 55. I'm 53. I, I better pause because some of you are shocked, right? You're like, no way. He's 50, he can't be 53 and look that good. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. And, and, and over the years, David had established himself as a man of God, a composer of Psalms, a faithful shepherd, a valiant warrior on the battlefield, and a leader of God's people. So understand, as we look at this segment of David's life, we're not looking at the life of a rebel or some kind of sexual pervert, all right? But rather a guy who fell into a period of sin that had devastating consequences for his life, for his family's life, for his reign, and for the nation. I mean, David is the poster child for the truth that sin always 
takes us further than we want to go, and it keeps us longer than we want to stay, and it costs us more than we were expecting to pay. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, oh, look, the flowers are blooming, the sky is blue, the breeze is cool, the birds are singing. Hey, let's go out and kill some people, right? It's springtime. In the spring, at the time when kings go off the war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David stayed home when he should have been out doing battle for the Lord. I understand. If David had gone where he should have gone, if, if David had did what he should have done, these chapters in his life could have been avoided. And isn't that where we get ourselves in trouble? When we're not doing the stuff we should be doing, and we're not going to the places we should be going. You see, at these times, you and I are more susceptible to sin and temptation. Yeah, one day, David woke up and decided, I'm not going to go to war, but instead, I'm going to do what my desires want to do. And listen, Satan was waiting for decades to get a stronghold in David's life. You see, David, he didn't fall suddenly. And you know, some chinks in his armor already existed. I understand that strongholds usually start out with small footholds. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see the formation of a very costly foothold in the life of King David. 2 Samuel 5, 13, after he, uh, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. In other words, David's thinking with good reason, you know what, things are rocking in my kingdom. All is good. God is good, and I am good. And after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. It says that David took more, which means that David already had a bunch of wives and concubines. And a concubine was basically an almost wife. Pretty good definition. And listen, even though it may have been the cultural norm, even though it may have been expected that, that kings would, would take many wives, God had forbidden this. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God is talking to Moses about the kind of king that he wants to have one day. And he says this. He says, he must not take many wives. Why? Or his heart will be led astray. I mean, could God be any clearer than that? And that's exactly what David did. He took many wives and his heart drifted and was led astray from God. I understand. Uh, there are a lot of things that our society, that our culture says are okay, says are perfectly fine to do, to be, and to participate in, that God says in his word, it's not okay. It's not okay. And Maple Grove, this is where the rubber meets the road for us as believers. Who are we going to listen to? Will we get our values? Will we get our sense of what is right and what is wrong from the creator or from the creation? Peter says this to help us answer that question. He says this, for, for all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Uh, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord does what? It, it, it endures forever. Romans 3, 4, I'm going to read that again. For all people are like grass and their glory. They seem so 
famous and popular right now. They seem to have got it going on. It's like the flowers of the field, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Romans 3, 4 says that God be true and every human being a liar. In other words, when, when there is a conflict between what an infinite, infallible, always existent, all-powerful, holy God says, and what finite, fallen human beings, what our culture says, go with God. God wins. Uh, Understand, for those who claim to follow Christ, the Word of God and not the opinions of people and culture are to be our authority. Get it? Good. You see, the truth is that that opinions and people and and cultures and philosophies of this world, they come and they go, but the Word of God, it endures forever. I I mean, for me, it just makes sense. You know, am I going to anchor my life to to, to the God who's always been and always will be? Or am I going to anchor my life to what people are saying in the year 2012, 2013? I want to show you a picture of a child right here. Um, This is Kinley Grace Akasella, about 13 ounces at the time, and born at 23 weeks old. And you know what? Our culture, our society would say, you know what? It it would have been perfectly okay for Mike and Shelly to kill Kinley while she was in her mother's womb. Culture says it's okay. Even older than 23 weeks, guess what? God says it's wrong. God says it's wrong. And and this is Kenley now. She's a miracle. By the way, she participated in her first walk for life yesterday. Seriously, how fitting. Uh, Again, whenever there is a conflict between what an infinite, infallible, holy, righteous, always existing God says... And what culture says, go with God. You know, as a pastor, I I think one of the greatest threats to the Christian mission in our country is a growing disregard and disrespect for the authority of God's Word among God's people. I, I mean, is God's Word the final authority or not? Is God's Word the final authority on how we use our tongue? Oh, did he go there? I was liking that authority on abortion. Yeah, I, I went there. I went there. Is God's word the authority on how we use our tongue? Is it the authority on how we spend our time, how we spend our money? Is God's word the authority on how you and I deal with it when people inevitably will hurt us and betray us? Is God's word the authority on how we treat our enemies? Is God's word the authority on how you and I respond to the needs of the least of these in, in our community? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God endures forever. Don't copy, Paul says, the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. You see, we have some stinking thinking right now because we live in a stinking thinking culture. they, They think they understand more than God understands. I think it's a better idea to anchor to God. Let God transfer a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Uh, Question, 
Why do you think David kept adding to his harem? Was it because he says, you know what, I'd like to have more kids, more college tuition. I just love mother-in-laws and can need a few more. No, if I was a betting man, David kept adding to his harem because he wanted more sex. Right? He's a guy. He wanted more sex. And Maple Grove, in David's life, we see an important lesson about sexuality and about the, the nature of lust for anything in the world that is outside the boundaries of God's Word. More is not the answer. I understand, David had maybe 20 to 30 wives and concubines, and it still wasn't enough. You see, when it comes to lust, Mick Jagger was right. We can't get no satisfaction, right? But we try, and we try, and we try. When even David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, yeah, he knew where he was going. Yeah, yeah, he knew what he was going to see. If you're flipping through HBO and Showtime at 1 o'clock in the morning, you know what's going to pop up, right? From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Let me tell you, when the Bible says a woman is beautiful, you better believe it means it. And very rarely does it use the word very. She wasn't just beautiful. Bathsheba was very beautiful. We can be sure that she was a knockout, physically attractive, beyond description. And you know what? I read this and I wonder, did Bathsheba knowingly put herself in a place where she could be seen? I mean, she knows who lives next door. And she knows whose uh, roof overlooks her bathing spot. Yet, yet David has his own issue with sexual lust here and perhaps a bigger issue. But listen, Bathsheba, a very beautiful woman, being naked in his backyard, I mean, that didn't help, all right? I'm just saying, that didn't really help the guy out that much. If she'd not been out there bathing naked in his backyard, David would not have sinned. And understand, before that fateful day, he didn't even know who she was. A, a guy named, named Raymond Brown wrote this. It's not enough merely to avoid sin ourselves. The New Testament insists that Christians must ensure they do not become a stumbling block to others. Paul writes in Romans 14, 13, decide to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble. And now I feel the need to say something here that may not win me a lot of friends, all right? Uh, But ladies... When you dress in an immodest way, when, you know, uh, in ways where guys see too much skin or see too much of your, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> guys notice. Guys see. All, all guys look. I had a friend invite me to Wings one time, Tim Dykes. I thought I was going to get Wings. I go, I say, dude, I got to take my glasses off in here. Because I'm seeing a whole lot more than Wings and I don't want to see that. <laughs> you know, I do want to see that. That's the problem. Take the glasses off. Seriously. <laughs> I, I, I waited table for four years in Bible college. Nothing worse than a man waiting tables looking down at women when he's at a table while he's trying to take their order. Hey, I guess what I'm trying to say, ladies, or guy, I was going to say, could you help a brother out? You know? I mean, we're screwed up enough, all right? We struggle with lust enough. Just help us out just a little bit. <laughs> I know those guys or ladies clapping. I'm not even going to look up. <laughs> and again, what's the authority, right? Here, Paul said this, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent, appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves. 
You know, you know as a dad and a husband, you know, I, I don't need to be, but I, I'll be the clothes Nazi if I have to. Last thing I want to do, someone lusts in there for my wife or my daughter. You know, I, I don't want that. I know me, and I know you guys. You're pigs. <laughs> okay, enough, enough said there. Guys are pigs. Uh, I, had to, I had to get the ladies back somehow, man, because that was losing, losing my ladies in there. Okay. Uh, uh, and, and, and now to the bigger culprit. David was on the roof when he should have been doing his job as king. Uh, understand, David should have turned, away, turned around and walked away and found satisfaction in the 20 to 30 wives that he already had. Guys, we can't help the first look, but we can help the second, the third, the fourth, and fifth look. And David looked, and he looked, and he looked, and that look turned into lust. And he began to imagine what it would be like to be with her. So David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, that seems to be an odd way to tell David her name. Well, who's that lady over there? Well, well that's, that's Laurie. Yeah, she's the daughter of Dale Martin, and she's the wife of Steve Malone, the pastor. You see, this unknown servant, he knows exactly what's going on. He, he's watched David make his moves on women before. And he's trying to give David a not-so-subtle warning. Oh, you want to know who that beautiful woman is you're lusting after? She's a daughter of one of your longtime friends, Eliam, your general who's out on the field, your most trusted soldier. That who, that's who she is. If you read the list of David's mighty men, he's listed right there. And, and I got to tell you, an older guy making moves on the daughter of one of his friends is just plain creepy. I mean, it is wrong in just so many ways. And there could, be, uh, there could not be a more blatant violation of the bro code than that one, right? And, and not only that, my king, Bathsheba is also married to another one of your mighty men, the guy, Uriah the Hittite, a, a guy who left his people and his culture because he loved you so much, David, that that's who you're lusting after. You see, oftentimes, just before we jump off the cliff and freebase jump into a sin, that's freebase jumping right there. It looks like a lot of fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Parachute open, right? And all its consequences, God usually gives us one last warning. Before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, an angel said, Lot, get out of here. And God sent Jonah to Nineveh and said, you know what? You guys got 40 days to repent or, or I'm going to level the place. Jesus said to Peter, he, he, he said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And, and now may, may I be so bold to say that maybe this message, maybe chapter 12 of the story, maybe this tragic event in the life of David is your warning from God. A warning that, that you are on the edge of a cliff, the edge of a huge mistake, and, and, and this morning, God is telling you, don't do it. Don't go there. Walk away. Walk away. Walk away while you still can. David wouldn't walk away. It was too late. I mean, he had lost control of his passion. And we're like, what was he thinking? That's the problem. He wasn't thinking. <laughs> right? He, he was feeling. I mean, eventually, David adopted the philosophy of the rock group Oreo Speedwagon who wrote in 1984, I can't stop this feeling anymore. I've forgotten what I started fighting for. 
It's time to bring this ship ashore and throw away the oars forever. And he gave up fighting the feeling because the only thing driving David's ship was his desire, and he was not going to stop until he got what he wanted. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he, he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from a monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. And I, am, I guarantee they had a great night. It was a passionate night. It, it was an exciting night. I, I mean, sin, especially sexual sin, it, it's pleasurable. We wouldn't do it. Then she went back home, probably under the cover of darkness. No one needed to know. And if anybody find it, anyone found out, who were they to judge? Two consenting adults and what they did behind closed doors. I mean, no one really got hurt. Well, that's what our culture says. But listen, there are rarely clean getaways. There are rarely clean getaways when we break God's moral law. See, the truth is, you and I, we, we, we don't break God's moral law. His moral law breaks us. Why? Because we're creating God's image, and his moral law is kind of like just, it's part of our DNA. It's who we are. We, we can try to deny it, but it doesn't matter because God is a holy moral God, and we are made in, in, in his image. Understand, we, we reap what we sow. We reap more than we sow. We reap later than we sow. And I like us to say it together because you're all having so much fun today, right? <laughs> Woohoo! All right. Uh, we reap, one, two, three. We reap what we sow? Wow. Okay. You really didn't want to say it, did you? One, two, three, together. We reap what we sow. We reap more than we sow. We reap later than we sow. And that's also true in a positive way, right? Uh, Jesus said, like one seed, right? In, in good fill will reduce a crop a hundred times what was planted. Chuck Smidall said it well. He says, it's been my observation over the years that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He shows you only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of stolen desires. But he never tells a heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there'll be a hangover. Ultimately, you'll ruin your family. He never tells a drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, you're going to get caught, friend. You do this and you'll wind up behind bars. He certainly doesn't warn the adulterer, you know, pregnancy is a real possibility, or you, get, you could get a life-threatening disease. Are you kidding? Face it. When the sin is done and all the penalties of that sin come due, the devil is nowhere to be found. He smiles as you fall, but leaves with no encouragement when the consequences kick in. Now, let me make this clear. Sex is good. Sex is God's idea idea. And sex within the boundaries that God, the creator, sustainer, you know, the guy in charge set up, a man and woman in a covenant marriage is powerful, intimate, beautiful, and supernaturally binds two people together. But sex outside of God's design will always reap painful consequences. And for David, those painful consequences began three to four weeks after that night of ecstasy. He gets a text message from Bathsheba. Three words, no one having sex outside God's design ever wants to hear, I am pregnant. Yeah, we have free will, and we can choose to do whatever we want to do. God lets us make that choice. But listen, once we song, we do not get to choose either the size or the yield of our harvest. Acts 2, cover-ups. Now, fortunately, David's first response to this sin was not repentance, so he's like, how do I fix this? How, how, how do I cover this up? 
So he sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, my friend. And, and, and Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers, he didn't care. He didn't care what anybody was doing. He, he wanted to get Uriah back so Uriah would come back home, sleep with his wife, and everyone would think the baby was Uriah's. Yeah, I know he's a little underweight, doesn't look like Uriah, but there's no way without DNA, DNA testing, which there wasn't, they could never tie this thing back to me. And he tells him, hey, go home and be with your wife. And David's like, you know what? This was close. But I think I'm good now. Then what happens is we read, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants. They did not go down to his house. They was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked, Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why, why don't you go home? Why don't you go be with your wife? And here we see this honor this guy. The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And his honor had to stab David in the heart, but not deep enough because David goes, okay, plan B, I'm going to get the guy drunk. And if I get him drunk, he'll go home and be with his wife, and that didn't work. And then David sits down, and, 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 and he grabs a piece of paper, and he writes a letter to Joab. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out where the fighting is fierce. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. David seals the letter and he hands it to Uriah. David knew he wouldn't open it. He's a man of honor. And so in his hands, he's carrying his very own death warrant. He gives it to Joab and Joab follows the order. Though I know it had to change his opinion of his commander-in-chief. And after the deed was done, Joab sent word to the king. The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate, and the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David told the messer, say this, Joab, uh, don't let this upset you. People die. People die. It's just the way. Talk about cold-hearted. And did you notice that Uriah was the only person, wasn't the only guy that died? Understand, other wives lost their husbands that day. Other parents lost their sons. Other kids had to grow up without their dad. All to cover up David's sin. And such is the ripple effect of your sin and mine. And David's like, wow, that was tougher than I thought, but at least it's done. It's over. I can move on. But listen, if we think that David is free and clear, living large, we couldn't be more wrong. Though a well-kept seeker, this sin was killing David. Destroying him from the inside out. In fact, he wrote about it in Psalm 32, how he felt at this very time. He said, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. And I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. You ever been there? Act 3, Confrontations and Consequences. It's about a year later. David and Bathsheba's son is a couple months old, and God sends a prophet, Nathan, to David. And Nathan is an advisor and a trusted friend. says, hey, David, you know, I got this situation kind of delicate. I, I need some advice on it. There's two guys in a certain town. One rich has all kinds of sheep and cattle. Another guy has this one small lamb. It's not really a lamb. It's like a family pet, and he eats off his plate, drinks from his cup. He even holds the lamb as the lamb goes to sleep at night. And, well, one day the, the rich guy was entertaining guests, and rather than killing one of its thousands of sheep, he took the one lamb that belonged to this one guy, and he killed it. 
And Scripture says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And then David, then Nathan revealed to David all the consequences that would come. David, you know what? The sword's never going to leave your house. And dysfunction's going to settle in your family like you haven't seen. You're going to have a son who's going to rape his sister. Her brother's going to wind up killing him. And, and your son, Absalom, who you love so much because he's so much like you, such a great warrior, he's going to be estranged from you. He's going to try to take your throne. He's going to sleep with your wives on the rooftop, and one day he's going to die. I mean, David's household became like a Jerry Springer show on steroids that would not go off. Understand the pain of reaping always exceeds the pleasure of sowing. Act 4, confession and restoration. David's caught. What's he going to do? I mean, it looks, time, looks like time for another cover-up, right? I mean, I mean, if I just kill Nathan, nobody needs to know. But that's not what David did, not even close. Understand, when David got caught, when David was confronted in an unbelievable display of repentance, he simply said to Nathan six words, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied with seven words, the Lord has taken away your sin. Do you see how fast that was? Understand, authentic repentance leads to automatic, immediate, and complete forgiveness. I'm going to say that again. Authentic repentance leads to automatic, immediate, complete forgiveness. Is, is our God good or what? Could he be any gooder than that? I mean, he barely had the words out of his mouth, and God said, I've taken away your sin. It's gone. I forgive you. That's our God. Understand, no sin is beyond restoration, but neither is it without consequences. Next verse, David, David, you know, because, but because of doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Question, how can a man be after God's own heart who committed adultery with one of his best friend's daughters, one of his best friend's wives, and, and then had the husband killed, and a bunch of other people died because of it. I, I understand, it's not about the sin we commit, but it's about our response to it. Remember a thousand years later? A thousand years after this sin, in Acts 13, 22, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write that David is a man after God's own heart. Understand, if God wanted to, he could have revised it, he could have clarified it, he could have defined it, but he didn't because such is the wonder, the beauty, the awesomeness of God's mercy and his grace. It's amazing. You see, King Saul, he didn't make half the mistakes David made, but he failed because, you know what he did? Uh, when he was confronted, he pointed fingers. Well, Samuel, if you weren't laid, uh, and my troops kept all the good stuff, it wasn't me, and they were, they were leaving. But David, instead of pointing a finger when he was caught in sin, bowed the knee. Instead of pointing a finger, David bowed the knee. 
Sure, there are always consequences, but no sin is beyond restoration. No sin is beyond restoration. You see, though David was beaten, he was not defeated. Because God's grace always allows us to rise again. You don't want to read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 or reading David's biography. But if you ever wanted to know what David felt during this time, you only have to turn to Psalm 51. You see, after Nathan left, David went by himself, maybe by a creek, maybe somewhere in his palace, but he went alone and he cried out before God and he grabbed his journal and he made the most amazing journal entry in human history. It's called Psalm 51. This psalm has healed me. This psalm, this psalm has been my salvation. More times than I can count. I have read and reread this psalm hundreds of times. This is one of my Bibles, my older one. And, and, and there's times, and I've read it more than this, but there's sometimes I, I just feel so broken. Maybe you've never been there. I, I just feel so bad. I feel so lost. I read this psalm, and I write the dates, man. You can say 16 November 1990, 18. They're like. Here's what he wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So we are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, because I can't do it. I keep trying and it's not working. And I'm tired and I'm frustrated. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Well, that's his story. Takeaways are quick. And I think if David was here today, Here's what I'm convinced of. Every one of us needs to do at least one of these things. And and I think there's one specific takeaway that God is saying, would you please do it today? And here's this takeaway real quick. When tempted, run from it. Run from it. Run from it. Don't play with it. Run from it. When you sin, own it. Don't point fingers. Don't blame somebody else. Just own it. And I think David would say next, he said, you know what? When God offers redemption, accept it. Amen. 
Accept it. You know, I, I was reading Psalm, um, Revelation 7 today. I think it was God's time. You know, because like we sing you are good and I thought God is good in my prayer time. And, and, and it said this. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Salvation doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from what you don't do. It doesn't come from what you do do. When God... <laughs> I've never said do do in church before. I need a drink of water for that. Oh, Wow. Okay, when God offers redemption, accept it, and when the new day dawns, live in it. See, David, he didn't wallow in his guilt. You know what he did? What do we see he doing at the end of his life? He says, you know what? Yeah, God says I can't build the temple, but he didn't say that I couldn't make sure every bit of the supplies my son needs is there. Listen, you know what David said? You know what? Don't live in your guilt. Live in your freedom. Live in God's grace. Live in God's mercy. Amen. And maybe one of these you need to take today. If you're tempted, run from it. If you're caught in sin, own it. If God is offering you redemption today, accept it. And if the new day is done, live in it. Walk in that freedom. Amen. And we're going to... And, and we're going we're gonna to sing a song. And Don't anybody stand yet. And there's some of y'all ready so quick. And, and you know, every week our elders are going to be off to the side. They can pray with you during the service. They'll be available after the service. Not that these guys are any better, more righteous than you are, but God has set these guys as the leaders of your church, and there's something special when they pray for you. And, and so, you know, after the service, they'll be here for, you know, five minutes. You need to talk and pray. You know, we don't want you leaving this room if you want prayer. And our leaders will be available. And, and as we sing, if you have a decision to make, if God put on your heart, maybe you want to just come and just pray and say, God, you know what? I just want to pour my heart out to you. Whatever God has put on your heart, um, we're going to sing a, a, an, old, an old hymn, you know, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. Uh, would you stand and I'll pray? And we're just going to worship God and celebrate his goodness. Father God, we love you. We worship you. We need you. God, thank you for David. Thank you that he was just so real. And thank you, God, that no sin is beyond restoration. And God, I pray for the person in this room, God, who right now just needs to run from the trap the enemy has him in or has set for him. And, and for the one who just needs to own and confess it and admit that what they're doing is not right with you. And God, I pray for the one who has done that and thinks they have to earn their salvation. They have to read their Bible a hundred million times or show up to church every week. God, that they realize salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Mm -hmm. And God, for those who the enemy wants to have them to wallow in their sin and guilt, that they would live and walk in that freedom. Come thou fount of every blessing. Amen.